We are starting in Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. Ordinarily, there's one passage of scripture I focus on in a sermon. This time, we're going to be covering a lot of scripture. We're kind of looking at a specific topic and how it's all through the Bible. Uh, when I was in college, I took, as an elective, I took psychology. And it was one of the best classes I took. In fact, uh, one of the rare instances where all these years later, I still remember the professor's name. His name was Dr. Todd Ransford. Uh, he was a young guy, probably early 30s at the time, uh, probably newly minted PhD. And I suspect that the girls in the class liked him for very different reasons than I did. But I liked him because he was a good storyteller. And that's the truth with most, most good teachers. And one story he told us, I'll never forget, he talked about he and his wife lived in California when he was in grad school, and uh, one night they were eating dinner on the, apart on, the, on the balcony of their apartment complex because that's what you do in California. If you've ever lived in California or traveled through there, you know uh, there's a reason why it costs so much to live there because it's pretty much good weather year-round. And so they were out on their balcony. All their neighbors were. They could just look around. It was like everybody sitting on their balcony eating dinner. And that suddenly their, their peace and quiet was dis disrupted when they heard the sound of a woman screaming. And see, so their, their apartment complex was right over a real busy street and there was, a, there was an intersection just a couple hundred yards further ahead, and a car had stopped in the middle of that intersection, and a woman had jumped out and was screaming for help. And as they watched, a man jumped out of the car, grabbed her, threw her back in the car, and then drove away. Now, Dr. Ransford said there's a, there's a, a psychological phenomenon called the bystander effect. Some of you know about this. And the bystander effect says that in certain situations, in groups of people, when groups of people witness a crime or a person in some kind of crisis who needs help, no one will do anything. No one will step up because everyone in the group will assume, well, there's lots of people here. Somebody else is going to step up and I won't have to. I won't have to get involved. And Dr. Ansford was able to look around and realize that's what's going on here. All my neighbors are just on their balconies watching this happen and no one's doing a thing. And so he thought to himself, well, I can't wait to tell my professor about this tomorrow. No, that's not what happened. He, he said, honey, can you get that license plate? And she wrote it down and he took that and called the police and reported the, the make and model of the car and the, the license plate number. And, and he knew because that's human nature, I need to do something because probably no one else will. Now, I've been in church my whole life. I mean, I'm one of those prenatal Baptists, right? There's no telling how much scripture I heard while I was still floating in my mother's womb. Uh, and every time the doors were open, my parents had me in church. And when I was nine years old, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. When I was 16 years old, I came to this point where I realized I need to start following him diligently, really pursuing Christ and trying to grow into the man I need to become. And, and what my understanding of that was, was the person I wanted to become, the person I needed to become, was two things. It was someone who knew the Bible and who avoided sin. And so that was the goal of my young Christian life. And even when I became a pastor, those were my two goals. I wanted to, I wanted to encourage and, and arm twist and, and manipulate whatever it took to get the people of my church 
to read the Bible for themselves. If I could teach people to feed themselves on the Word of God, and if I could teach them that the day you get saved is not the last time you repent, it's throughout your life. Whenever God brings to your attention, these are sins I want you to work on, you need to be constantly repenting. I thought if I could just get them to do those two things, then I will be, I will be doing my job as a pastor, and they'll be growing into men and women of God. And, and let me just reiterate I do believe every Christian should know the Word of God. Every Christian should feed themselves on the Word of God. Don't wait on, on Sunday. You don't eat once a week, do you? you don't, well, don't, don't feed yourself only on Sunday mornings by what I say. You need to feed yourself on the Word of God, and you need to be constantly in search of ways to get closer to God and repent of sin. Yes, but if that's all we do as Christians, then we're no different than those people on those, on those balconies in California who were diligently feeding themselves and who weren't hurting anybody. But none of us would say they were doing what they should. There is such a thing as a spiritual bystander effect. And that I'm afraid that has afflicted the, the Christian church throughout the ages that says, as long as I'm a good person, and a good person means knowing the Bible and avoiding sin, then God's happy with me. And that's not the message of Scripture. The whole thesis of this series is that the defining characteristic of a person whose life is being shaped by a walk with Jesus Christ is that they cannot stop investing in others. They cannot stop stepping up when they see human suffering and problems and pain. They have to get involved because it's the Jesus in them that insists on that. Now, to some people that might sound new, but what I want to show you today is that is in the scriptures from beginning to end. And I want to start in a very unexpected place, and that is the city of Sodom. Some of you know about this. Genesis 19 tells the story. We're not going to read the story. Tells the story, though, of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, two of the great cities of the ancient world that God destroyed with his own wrath, poured out with fire and brimstone from on high. And you're like, I, I knew that I'd be in a Baptist sermon. Eventually, I'd hear about fire and brimstone. Well, this is that sermon, okay? That's when it happened. And it's a very disturbing story, but the, the real disturbing part of the story is not just that God literally slays thousands of people in a single night. It's what happens right before, because God sends two of his angels who look just like men into that city, into the city of Sodom, to rescue the, literally the only righteous people in the city, Lot and his family. And as they go in, the men of the city see these two new men come in and say, hey, let's get together and do some unspeakable things to those men. Now, that's not the way it's said. You can read Genesis 19 for yourself. The point I'm making is, we know that story. If, if you've read the Bible or if you grew up in church, you've heard that story. And, and the, the, what, what, what most of us take from that story is, oh, okay, so there's certain sins that God hates more than others. Not true, by the way, but that's what we read from that. There's certain sins that God really hates, and if you do these sins, then you will incur God's judgment. And the, the secondary point is, okay, I, I would never do what those guys in Sodom did. I, that doesn't even appeal to me. Therefore, God must be happy with me. Wait a second, though. You got to read all the scripture and see what he says. Because in Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 is where God actually says, here's why I destroyed those two cities. Here's why I decided those cities have to be wiped out before their, their sin spreads. And this is what it says. Ezekiel 16, 49 says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So God is saying to the Israelites, 
who look back on the Sodomites all those years before and say, now they were evil, we're nothing like them, we're good. He says, you're every bit as bad. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So get this. Sodom wasn't, wasn't punished for what those men did the night God sent the angels, because he'd already decided before then to punish the cities. God, Sodom wasn't punished for what they did at all. They were punished for what they didn't do. They didn't care about those around them who were struggling. They didn't care that they had the ability and the resources to help others, but they chose not to. Now, I have been in church my whole life, like I said. I've heard a lot of sermons, innumerable sermons, and, and I've periodically heard the same basic sermon that essentially says, boy, America is going to be under the judgment of God if we don't change our ways. Okay, amen. What do you mean by that? So when you listen to most of these sermons, here's how it goes. Look at the trash that's coming out of Hollywood and our entertainment industry. Look at the Super Bowl halftime show, for goodness sakes. We need to change our ways. Or look at the unjust laws that are coming out of Washington. If we don't change that, if we don't get the right people there, God's judgment's going to be on us. Or look at the kinds of lifestyles. Just go to the mall, go to the beach, go to, go to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Look at the ungodly lifestyles of the unbelievers around us. If that doesn't change, God's judgment's going to be upon us. I mean, you've heard that sermon too if you've been in church. And yet the more biblical sermon is, that I never hear, is God's judgment is going to be on his people, the church, if we don't get off the pew and care about those around us. If all we do is sit and sing the same songs and preach the same sermons and memorize the same scriptures and, and, and get proud of ourselves because we don't cuss or drink or chew or go with girls that do, um, if, we, if that's all we have, and God's judgment is upon us. And, and I got to say, I don't, I don't like to throw my fellow preachers under the bus, but sometimes it's necessary. I'm going to give you a little inside baseball that you may not want to know. But part of the reason why this happens is it's a whole lot easier to build a big church and become rich and famous and get yourself on TBN and, and get lots of you know, likes on Instagram if you preach sermons that that, that focus on pulling the speck out of the eye of unbelievers out there. Whereas if you're doing what Jesus did and the prophets did, and you're, you're focusing on the plank in our eye as the people of God, well, that's not nearly as popular. So let's look at what the scriptures actually say. Go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Who's the first family? There's Adam and Eve, and they had two sons, Cain and Abel. You know how that turned out, right? What happens after Cain murders his brother Abel. The first act of violence that we know of in human history, God confronts him. Genesis 4, 9 through 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Cain says, it's not my problem, Lord. He's, that's his business. And God says, well, it's my problem. I can't stop thinking about what you've done to your brother. And you see, that, that gap is the gap between us and God. Because our tendency is to say, Lord, it's not my problem. I've got my own problems. And God says, well, but I want their problems to become your problems. I want you to take their burdens upon yourself. That's what it means to be a man or woman of God. 
You get to the law of Moses. You may know, you may know this, but you may not. God intended to redeem this broken world through a race of people that we call the Jews. He creates this nation out of Israel. And, and they're former slaves. They've been slaves for generations, 400 years to be precise. And on the way to the promised land, God is teaching them, this is what it means to be a people who will stand up for me in a way that glorifies me. And that's the law of Moses. And we think of the law of Moses, we think of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt do these things, thou shalt not do those things. We think of don't eat this food, don't say these words, don't wear these clothes, don't do these things. And yet when you actually sit down and read the law of Moses, there's a lot in there, an incredible amount in there that's about how you treat your neighbor. I'll give you an example. Exodus 22, verses 21 through 24 says, you shall not wrong a sojourner. That's a word for immigrant. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Isn't that a verse that you'd love to put on a coffee mug? Uh, you know, and just you know, bumper sticker, calligraphy on your wall. So what is God saying? God says, don't mistreat immigrants, orphans, or widows. You, you actually take the time to read the whole Old Testament. Those three groups come up over and over and over again. Why? Because they were the three groups on earth that no one stood up for. No one stepped up to defend them. So you could rob them, you could assault them, you could do anything you wanted to, and nobody would step up and say, I'm going to punch you in the face if you don't stop this. And God says, okay, since no one else will step up for them, I will. I will punch you in the face if you mess with these people. And you do not want to be punched in the face by the living God, okay? If that's the only thing you remember but from this sermon, you can, you can write that down, all right? But what does he mean to mistreat? Because it goes further than just robbing or assaulting. He goes on and says, if you loan them money, don't charge them interest. I don't want you making money off of the poorest of the poor. If, if they owe you something, don't go and take away their cloak. Because if you're a, a poor person, a cloak is the only thing of value you own. And that's what keeps you asleep at night. You can't, you can't stay warm. So God is saying, even though it's not your fault that they're poor or fatherless or an immigrant, you make their problems your problems. You consider what they're going through. You do to them what you would want someone else to do to you in their position. And then in chapter 23, he says, Exodus 23, he says, if you see your enemy's ox or, don or donkey wandering, bring it back to him. Now, I grew up in the country. And I remember so many times as a child, we'd be on our way to church or a ball game or the grocery store, and my parents would see a cow in a ditch, and they'd turn around and they'd go home and they'd call Mr. So-and-so and say, hey, your cow's out, um, and, and he'd say, okay, and then we'd drive back to that spot and help him get the cow back in. That's what you do in the country. Some of you know this. But God is saying, do that for your enemy, because he knows our tendency would be, you see, Joseph's ox out and you think, ah, oh, good for him. You know, serves him right. He's a jerk. I hope somebody cooks and eats it. God says, no, Joseph's problem is your problem. Joseph's burden is your burden. Even if he doesn't deserve it, that's how I want you to live. He goes on to say in, in Leviticus 19 and chapter 23, two times he says, allow poor people to glean in your fields. Some of you know the book of Ruth. 
Uh, Ruth is about a, a woman from another country, literally an immigrant. She and her Israelite mother-in-law are both widows. They come back to Israel, Bethlehem, in fact, right at the time of barley harvest. They are literally going to starve to death, but a man named Boaz, who's a righteous man, says, come, you can glean in my field. In other words, walk behind my workers as they harvest, and whatever they leave behind, you pick it up. In fact, he tells his workers, hey, Help these ladies out. Drop a little extra so they'll have enough to feed themselves. That's what God is commanding here. And then in Deuteronomy 15, he says, if someone in Israel owes you money after seven years pass, you cancel the debt, even if they haven't paid you back. And if someone is so poor that they had to come to you and say, I can't feed my family. I'm going to starve to death. Can I just be your slave? Can I work for you in in exchange for, for food and shelter? After six years, in that seventh year, you have to give them the chance to be free unless they don't want to leave. And then my favorite part, in Leviticus 25, God says every 50 years, so twice a century, you're going to have a year of jubilee. And what that means is in the year of jubilee, all debts are canceled, all slaves are set free, and all land reverts back to the original family. It was the great reset. Because when Israel went into the land, in the promised land, every family got land. Because that was the only thing that mattered in the ancient world. If you had land, you could feed your family. You could farm. You could raise raise animals. But if you had no land, you had nothing. So everybody got land. But we know how humanity is, right? We know human nature. And over time, people lost their land because maybe maybe they were irresponsible or maybe they were lazy or maybe they just had a series of bad harvests. So imagine you're one of those families that's landless in Israel. And you're stuck in poverty. You're a slave or you're a sharecropper. And there is literally no way out. You're going to be poor forever. And your grandchildren and great-grandchildren after them. So God says, every 50 years, there's going to be a great reset. And you go back to the land that your family originally inherited back in the book of Joshua in the invasion of the land. And think about the people who had quote-unquote, done things the right way and and had good fortune, and so they owned lots of land because where their neighbors had lost it, they'd been able to gain it. And they didn't like the year of Jubilee because they're like, well, you know, I like thinking that I've got so much land and so many animals and so many crops that my my kids will always have security. But God says, yeah, but but what about about your neighbors who are going to be poor forever otherwise? Their problems are your problems. Don't just think about yourself. When you get to the middle of the Bible, the the wisdom literature of Scripture, same emphasis over and over again. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So this is the opposite side of that coin, where God steps up for the people who are being mistreated. In this case, he also pays back those who are good to them. And just like it's not good to get punched in the face by Almighty God, it is good to be someone who he owes something to. He says, hey, they can't pay you back, so I will pay them, pay you back for them. But it's not just about money. It's not just about charity. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let me tell you what that's about. You see someone in your life who is headed off the rails they haven't, they haven't hit the train wreck yet, but you know it's coming. You know that it's coming, and you're sitting there saying, somebody should say something. Someone should tell them you need to change. You need to, you need to correct this course you're on. That someone is you. 
So don't be the kind of friend that just gives them kisses. In other words, it just tells them what they want to hear. Yeah, you're right. Your husband is the worst. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, you definitely, your, your parents are, are, are ridiculous and you don't need to obey them. No, don't be that friend. Be the friend who sometimes wounds your friends by telling them the truth they don't want to hear. Now, that's hard. Nobody wants to do that. Or if you do want to do that, I, man, I, I don't want to mess with you. <laughs> but none of us wants to do that. And yet, we have to step up and speak the truth in love. Here's an even better one. I, I love this. Proverbs 27, 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Don't you love the practicality of that? They're saying it's, it's just as simple as consideration. You're, you're an early morning person. You wake up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday and you think, I'm going to go outside and get some things done. I got a jackhammer and I'm going to bust up some concrete. But you've got a neighbor who's got a kid that hadn't slept through the night ever, and Friday night, he finally does it. Or you've got a neighbor who works the night shift, or you've got a neighbor who just, he's just been looking forward to a, a late morning. And you're like, but, but what does that matter to me? I want to get my work done before it gets hot outside. His problem is your problem. Think about others. Then we get into the last part of the Old Testament, the prophets, you ever notice the prophets are so cranky, right? They're just angry guys. Well, it's because they saw how the, the people of God were so sinful. And it wasn't just idolatry, and it wasn't just uh, what we would call wickedness. No, often it was the way they treated others. Let me share with you one of my favorites. This, to me, is hilarious, although no one thought it was hilarious when it was first spoken. Amos 4.1 says, You cows of Bashan who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, let me tell you what that's about. Amos was a prophet from the south, from Israel. He was a farmer and fig picker, a redneck. He went up north to Samaria, to the biggest, richest city in Israel. And this is him talking to the women of Samaria. He is literally calling them cows. And it has nothing to do with their appearance. It has to do with the fact that they're sitting around saying, hey, pop the cork, honey, uh, and pop those poor people off my porch. I'm here to drink wine, not to listen to it. And that's what he's condemning. Didn't make him very popular, but that's how God feels. Think about what Amos would say to our infinitely more affluent culture today. Now, think about this. The prophets even criticized the Israelites for their religiousness. As Baptist people, many of us in here in this room are Baptists, and, and, you know, we don't have sacraments, but if we did, covered dish dinner would be one of them, right? You know, eating would be one of them. Well, we can't even imagine, most of us, that some people actually fast, hey, do without food for hours, days on time, at a time to get closer to God. And yet, look, look at what Isaiah says about that in Isaiah 58, 6 through 7. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So he's saying, your religiousness does not impress me. You go to church all you want. You, you memorize scripture. You put money in the offering plate. You can even fast, and it will mean nothing to me if it is not combined with love for your neighbor. If you can walk past someone who's suffering on your way to church and not think about it and not take action, then I don't even care that you came to church that day. 
That's what Isaiah is saying. And this goes so against what we think of as being a good person. Because again, we think of a good person as someone who knows the Bible and who avoids the big vices, right? Who, who doesn't have any obvious outward sins. And yet think about the people when Jesus came to the world, God in human flesh come down to earth. When Jesus got here, who were the people on earth who best fit that description? They were the people who hated Jesus the most. You can be what the religious world calls a good person and be so far away from God that when you meet him face to face, you literally want to kill him. And there's this story that's, that's heartbreaking when you think about it. Uh, early in Jesus' ministry, he goes back home to Nazareth. He goes back to his home synagogue. Think, this is where he first had people teach him about the Lord. He, was, he first heard the Torah. Um, these are people who changed his diapers and babysat him, and some of them are even related to him. And they're like, hey, Jesus, son of Joseph, we're so proud of you. You're, you're becoming a big, big time preacher. Come in and give us a word. So he goes up to the front and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he finds Isaiah 61, one through two. This is a passage that the Jews understood. It was about the Messiah. And he said, the spirit, he read it, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And they love that. They're like, oh, good word, Jesus. Because to them, that meant when Messiah comes, he's going to take care of all our needs. But then Jesus said, remember. Remember when Elijah raised that little boy from the dead? It wasn't an Israelite boy. It was, a, it was a boy out in Syrophoenicia, out in the, in the pagan areas. And remember that, that pagan general that, that got baptized and, and, it, and God took away his leprosy? He didn't do that for any Israelites. He did that for Assyrian. And the people got so angry when they heard that. These are the people that had known Jesus his whole life. They dragged him to the highest point in the city and they were going to throw him off a cliff and kill him. And Jesus said, it's not my time to die and walked right through the midst of them. But what that story tells you is, there is within our heart a profound rebellion against this whole idea, such that when you hear it, when you hear God say, I want more from you than just Bible knowledge and morality, you get angry. You, you start to say, no, 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 that can't be scriptural. That's some, kind of, that's some kind of something invading the church from outside. No, that is scripture. And what we're going to do the rest of this series that will lead us all the way to Easter, Lord willing, is we're going to see how Jesus lived this out. We're going to follow him through his ministry and see how Jesus never passed by someone in need. In fact, if you want to talk about the bystander effect, the opposite of a bystander effect is what I'd call the Jesus effect. And that's where you are a person who is so close to him and so intent on living like him that you will not walk away from someone who is suffering. When you see a problem, you'll say, okay, God, I'm assuming you brought that to my attention because you want me to do something about it. And I'm not talking about random acts of kindness, and I'm not talking about giving to charity, although both of those are good. I'm not talking about occasionally going on a mission trip or volunteering. Those are good too. I'm talking about the people around you, your, your next door neighbor uh, who's going through a divorce, your, your coworker who uh, is struggling with suicidal thoughts, your classmate who's being bullied, uh, your, your friend uh, who, who can't pay his bills because he's made some mistakes in the past and he's filled with shame. At the same time, he, he's worried they're going to kick him out of his house. Those problems become your problems when you follow Jesus because Jesus took our burdens upon himself. 
That's the only way to follow Jesus. So in just a moment, I always end the sermon, my sermons with a prayer, but this time I want you, instead of listening to me pray, I want you to be praying. God can hear all of us pray at the same time. It's really one of those reasons why he's an awesome God. And I want you to just pray and say, Lord, who is it that I'm missing? The suffering that I see every day, who is it that I should be investing in, that I should be helping, that I should be stepping up to come alongside and show me the way? When I was in junior high, I considered myself a really good kid. I think a lot of other people would have too. I was, I was in church every Sunday. I was, my teachers loved me. I, my parents didn't give them a whole lot of trouble. I thought I was a really good kid. There was a kid in my junior high, I think he was a year older than me. This is not his real name, but I'm going to call him Ralph. Ralph was maybe the weirdest kid in our school. Um, tall, skinny, bad complexion, stringy blonde hair, looked like he'd never showered in his life, wore basically the same clothes every day. Um, some of you are my age, uh, you remember the 80s, so this is when, this is the height of heavy metal, right? So, so Richard, uh, Ralph loved uh, Judas Priest, uh, Black Sabbath, um, you know, Iron Maiden, these were his bands. Now this is before earbuds. This is before even the Walkman, if you're old enough to remember the Walkman. So there was, there was no way to take your music with you, but Ralph didn't know that. Ralph, he took his music everywhere he went. So everywhere he went, he was, he was jamming to that music. He was air guitaring, he was banging his head, walking down the hall, sitting in the cafeteria at lunch. So you can imagine nobody wanted to be around Ralph. In fact, I can remember one day in the hallway, a girl walking past him and a guy, just to be mean, shoved her so that she bumped into him and she screamed and ran away as if she'd just touched a leper. This is Ralph's life, right? So I'm laying in bed one night and I'm thinking about Ralph for some reason and I think to myself, I should be Ralph's friend. You know, that's, that's what Jesus would want me to do. That's what a good person would do and I think I'm a good person. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not one of the super popular kids but I do have friends and so if, if I bring Ralph in, then my friends will become his friends and he'll have something. And, you know, I... I'm not super athletic, but every day on the playground uh, after lunch, we always go out and we play touch football. So tomorrow, I'm just going to go up to him and I'm going to say, Ralph, come play with us. And he probably didn't know how to throw or catch. Or I'll teach him and, and then he'll, he'll have friends. And I thought, this is going to be good. I even pictured, I don't know what Ralph's mom looked like, but you know, Ralph's mom's going to come up to me someday and give me a big hug and say, thank you for being a friend to my son. You've, you've changed his life. And I thought, what a good person I am. I mean, what other, what other junior high kid thinks about something like that? I am a good person. Now, the next day I woke up. And, and you know what sounded so brilliant at night in the cold light of day sounded like a really bad idea. And yet I'd sort of made a promise to God. And I, I had a long bus ride to school because I lived out in the country, and so that meant a lot of rambling around over gravel roads. And so as I bounced around in the back of that bus, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to talk to Ralph today. I'm, I'm going to try to be Ralph's friend today. I don't know if this is going to work. But again, I'd made a promise. And so lunchtime came, and, and on that particular day, there was no going outside and playing because there was rain, and so they had us, they had us in the gym. And ordinarily, I would have been trying to make my way into a basketball game, but I spotted Ralph sitting by himself up in the stands and, you know, just probably doing a crazy train or something. I don't know. And, and, and I said, okay, here goes. 
And I went up and talked to him. And I got to tell you, it's hard to talk to someone as weird as Ralph. It was awkward. It was strange. He didn't respond to me like I thought he would. There was no sense of gratitude. Hey, thanks for talking to me. And I immediately started thinking, number one, okay, this is hard. Number two, everybody in school is probably looking at me right now because no one goes up and talks to Ralph. And, you know, what could that mean for me? I mean, what if, what if instead of him suddenly having friends because of what I'm doing, what if suddenly I have no friends? What if his problem suddenly becomes my problem? And, and I got out of there. I walked away pretty quickly. My attempt at Ralph's redemption lasted maybe a couple of minutes. And I think about that a lot because Ralph, I don't know, he, he may have moved or something, but he wasn't in my school again the next year. I don't know where he is today. But I think about that because spiritually speaking, every single one of us is Ralph because we don't qualify. Nothing about us fits in with the kingdom of God. Nothing. And yet God didn't say, good thing that weird kid isn't here with me. He came to me. He came to you. Our problems became his problems. Our weirdness stuck to him so that our rejection became his rejection. He bore our burdens. He carried our sorrows. And he took it all the way to the cross. And that's why we can be saved in every way possible. And if you want to know why, to reach out and love to others? Why to invest in others? Why to step up? It's not because in doing so that God's going to love you more. He couldn't love you more than he already does. It's because you've been loved this way. 